between Galilee, where Jesus performed his first miracle, and Judea, where Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, laid a region known as Samaria. And the inhabitants there were known as Samaritans. And the Jews of Jesus' day despised the Samaritans. After the death of King Solomon, God allowed the nation of Israel to split into two rival nations, into sort of a civil war. And he did this as punishment for Israel's grievous idolatry and for all of her sins. So there was a southern kingdom of Israel and a northern kingdom of Israel. And eventually, the king of the northern kingdom would establish a capital city for his new kingdom, and he called it Samaria. And so the southern kingdom obviously saw those Jews as political rebels. But then a little while afterward, a foreign nation, a Gentile nation known as the Assyrians, took over Samaria. And they exiled a good portion of Jews, especially the ones with a lot of power. Uh, But most of the Jewish people were allowed to stay in Samaria after the Assyrians took it over. And so what ends up happening whenever a foreign nation consumes another is over time, people start to marry and breed together. Even though the Old Testament was very clear that the Jews were not to marry outside of Israel, many of the Israelites in the northern kingdom were marrying Assyrians and having children with the Assyrians. And so the Jews of the southern kingdom, now they despise the Samaritans even more because now they see them as defiled. They are half-breeds with Gentile blood. And so really they're no longer Jews at this point. And then to make matters even worse, eventually the Assyrians allowed many of the exiled Jews to go back, and many of them chose to, which again, to the southern Israelites, was seen as traitors. And these reputations of being traitorous, rebellious, half breeds, Gentiles, continued all the way up into Jesus' day. Over the years, they only grew further and further apart in their animosity, and even in their religious beliefs and their religious practices. The hostility became so bad that in Jesus' day, the Israelites had a custom not to associate at all with Samaritans. You could purchase from their businesses, you could buy food from them and things, but you could not befriend them, you could not speak to them, you could not spend time with them, and you certainly could not eat with them because that would require you to touch cups that they've drinking from and plates that they've drinking from, and then you would become unclean, you would become defiled. And so these two people groups hated each other. And as God's providence would have it, as we go through the Gospel of John, it's now time for Jesus to be brought behind enemy lines, so to speak, and into direct contact with one of these rebel, half-breed traitors known as the Samaritans. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 4? John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When you're there, I would invite you to stand to show our reverence for the Word of God. We're going to read a longer portion than we are typical, than is typical for us. This is a a long story. John chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 30 together. If you would follow along with me. For thus saith the Lord. Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into a town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Jesus' popularity is beginning to cause drama in Judea. We already saw last week the drama it was causing even between John's own disciples, people who were supposed to be friendly with Jesus. But now the Pharisees are getting involved, which means the heat is really going to turn up, and Jesus is not interested in the heat at this time. So he says, I'm going to go back to where I'm actually appreciated, which is in Galilee. And so Jesus is going to take a three-day journey from Judea into Galilee. But in order to get there, unless you want to go a very long route around through the mountains... The only way to get there is to cross through Samaria. And so Jesus chooses the easy route, but then he has to take a break. The text says, why? Because he got tired. And I love that text. It reminds us of what we as Orthodox Christians have been affirming for 2,000 years now, which is that Jesus did not merely look like a human. He did not merely appear in the form of a human. He was actually human. Human beings get tired, they get weary, and Jesus is tired and weary because he is fully and truly man. And it's not an insult on him, I think every one of us would be tired as well if we were making a three-day journey on foot in the Middle East at noon when the sun is the hottest, right? So Jesus is rightly 
tired, and so they take a break in a town called Sikar, and he stops for a drink at a well while the disciples go to get some food. Now, Sakar is a relatively famous town in Samaria, and the well that Jesus chooses to drink from is there, and it's famous primarily because of this well, which is known in the text as Jacob's Well. Reminder, Jacob is one of the patriarchs of the Israelite faith, of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is, is incredibly popular because he's the one whose name is changed into Israel. And then his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So you are very much identified as an Israelite if Jacob is your grandfather, if he's one of your fathers. So Jacob, or Israel, is very important to the identity of Israel, right? And apparently Jacob at some time, while in this region, before he gave that region to Joseph, apparently he dug a well. Now the Old Testament does not actually tell us this. This is not a biblical story that's being referenced here. So it must just be a historical story that was passed along through the ages. But John seems to be affirming it. John seems to be attesting to it. So I think, it's, I think we can safely say that this actually happened. That Jacob the patriarch did in fact build a well in what was then known in Jesus' day as Sakar. And so Jesus is now alone at Jacob's well. And a Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. And so Jesus decides, I'm going to evangelize this woman. I'm going to preach the gospel to this woman. And as we're going to see multiple times in John's gospel, Jesus is just the master at turning his circumstances into a gospel presentation. Sometimes the hardest part about preaching the gospel is where do I start? Do I just walk up to someone and say, Jesus is Lord, repent? Do I ask them about their day first? How do I start? Jesus was just a master at starting the conversation and turning it into a gospel. So Jesus is noticing this woman has come to a well because it's hot and because she's thirsty and because she needs water. And he thinks, you know what? That's not a bad metaphor for the gospel. So I'm going to tell this woman about how she has a spiritual thirst and I have a spiritual water that can forever cleanse her spiritual thirst. So he turns her thirst, he turns the well into an evangelism opportunity. And so he breaks all social customs, all social norms, and he approaches this woman and he not only speaks to her, but he asks to share a drink with her. This is scandalous. And the text emphasizes the two reasons why this is scandalous. First, as we've talked about, it's scandalous because she's a Samaritan. And the Jews are not supposed to talk to Samaritans. But we also learn explicitly at the end of the text why the disciples were so scandalized. And it was primarily because she was a woman. What we see is that in the Old Testament, it's okay to say this, um, the Jewish people took their patriarchy too far. The Bible is a patriarchal book, but you, it is possible to have too much patriarchy. And the Jews took it too far. And they apparently had some pretty sexist views of women. And so Jesus was more than happy to break their sexism and to break their racism and to speak to a Samaritan woman. He was willing to embrace the scandal. And so he approaches her and he tells her about this living water that he offers her. After asking her for a drink, she is confused. And so Jesus implies the irony is that you should actually be asking me for water. 
But like Nicodemus, like we just saw in Nicodemus, and like you're going to see in John chapter 6, this is going to be a theme throughout John's gospel. When Jesus is trying to have spiritual conversations with people, they don't get it, and they over-literalize it. And she does just like what Nicodemus does and just like the Jews in John 6 do. And she over-literalizes it. So she thinks Jesus is talking about real water. When Jesus says living water, she thinks he means flowing water, natural water. And so she's confused because Jesus is offering her water that apparently can't be found in this well. But she doesn't see another well around. And, and he doesn't have water to, he doesn't have a, a, a jar to draw from this. Where is he going to get this water from? So she mocks him. She mocks him. She says, Jacob is the one, our father Jacob, he's the one who built this well. Are you greater than Jacob? You're going to build a well, buddy? The irony being lost on her that yes, this man she is speaking to is in fact far greater than Jacob. And so she is confused and she's taking Jesus literally. But in this conversation, it suddenly dawns on Jesus that this woman is confused about more than one thing. She's not just confused about Jesus' gospel presentation. She's confused about her own spiritual condition. This woman not only doesn't understand that Jesus offers her living water, she doesn't understand that she needs it. She has misdiagnosed her own spiritual condition. She's a Samaritan. They're the right ones in the debate. She's okay. So Jesus immediately wants to get her to see, before I offer her this living water again, I want to remind her that she needs it. She's a sinner. She's thirsty. So he says, you know what? Let's just talk to your husband instead. Because he knows her. He's God. He knows what she's going to say. I don't have a husband. And he say, that's true. But you're living with a man and you're sleeping with him as if he is your husband. You know what that's called? Sin. And apparently this is number five. So Jesus immediately brings to her attention a sensitive subject. That you have been living in sexual sin. You are a sinner. You need this water that I offer you. Jesus wants to show her her spiritual condition. She is parched. She is famished. She's a desert. But something ironic happens. When Jesus tells her something about herself that there's no way he could have known, she immediately perceives this. I'm not just talking to any old random Israelite here. This guy must be a prophet. This guy must have revelation from God to know these things. So rather than get convicted about her sin... She immediately gets excited and she goes, I want to hear what a prophet has to say about the big debate that's going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. Let's see, is he going to, is his allegiance going to be with his Jewishness? Or as a prophet, is his allegiance going to be with the truth? Is he going to take the side of the Samaritans or the side of the Jews? So rather than confess her sin and confess her need for spiritual cleansing, she asked Jesus about the hot-button religious and political conversation of her day. And so it shows us that she's pretty well plugged in. Uh, people like to call this story the woman at the well. I like to think of it as the theologian at the well. Right, this, this woman is plugged in. She, she's thinking. She's a thinker. She's interested in the politics and the religion of her day. She's well informed. And so she asks Jesus a good question. A really good question. Let's look at it again. Look at verse 20 with me. After perceiving that he is a prophet, she says this. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Now, not technically a question, but she's implying a question here. She's implying something here. And in order to understand it, I need to give you a little bit more background than I've already given you. So the Samaritans still considered themselves the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? That's why she, in this text, she identifies Jacob as our father, not your father, our fathers, right? So they still see themselves in this line. And here is her, and, and another um, problem with the Samaritans, one of their great theological errors that developed over the time was they ended up shrinking the biblical canon. They did not accept the entire Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books of Moses, which we refer to as the Pentateuch. So all of the prophets and all of the history and all of the Psalms and all of the wisdom, they rejected that and they only believed the Bible was limited to the first five books. They had a shrunken canon. And so here's the problem that created for them. Within the Pentateuch, God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to one day establish a land and a city for Abraham t- to dwell in. But we see in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, we see that city eventually becomes Jerusalem. And the temple is built in Jerusalem. But because they rejected those books, they didn't know where the sacred city was. So they had to sort of figure it out on their own. And they linked together pieces from the first five books of Moses. And they thought that the holy city needs to be on Mount Gerizim, which is a mountain just right outside of Sakar. Because after all, this is where Jacob ended up living. This is where Jacob worshipped God. This is where Jacob gave Joseph his land. As a matter of fact, the Samaritans were so convinced that Mount Gerizim was supposed to be the holy mountain, the temple mount, that they built their own temple on top of it, although it was eventually destroyed by the Jews. And so here's her issue. If, If I can summarize her question, this is basically her question. You Jews tell us that we are not honoring God unless we worship over there in Jerusalem. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshiped God not in Jerusalem, but right here. Why am I not allowed to worship God where the patriarchs worshiped God? Right? That's a good question. Aren't I the one actually inconsistent? I'm the consistent one. I'm the one following Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not them. Why are you telling me to worship there when this is where our fathers worshipped? This is where Jacob built his well. This is Jacob's home. This is Israel. And Jesus gives her an answer that's so transformative that she can't even accept it. It's so big that she just resides herself to say, you know what? Sounds like this is just something we're going to have to wait for the Messiah to come and figure out for us. This is above my pay grade. And what you're saying is kind of crazy. So I'll just wait for the Messiah. And obviously in that she opens the door. The exact door Jesus wanted to walk through. She's in luck. She's talking to him. And so she leaves. She's amazed. And she goes to evangelize her city. This guy's given me evidence. I think he might be right. I think we found the Messiah. But, so what was this big transformative answer? What did Jesus teach this Samaritan woman that was so profound that she just needed the Messiah to solve it? And, and, And when she thought he might have been the Messiah, it caused her to just leave her stuff at the well and just immediately go evangelize her whole city. What did Jesus say that was so powerful, so transformative, so moving? Well, let's look at Jesus' answer together. Verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Christ's incarnation began the process of instituting a new covenant. And after his death, resurrection, and then especially after the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, this new covenant was completely instituted. Jesus is here trying to teach the Samaritan woman before this. It's already started. Christ has already began the new covenant. It's just not been fully completed yet. And he's trying to teach this woman about this thing that is both already here, but it's also coming, this this new covenant. And what it's going to do is completely transform worship as she knows it. He's trying to tell her that with the coming of a new covenant automatically guarantees the coming of a new worship. Jesus is predicting here for her a total transformation of how we worship God. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus is not just totally riding the fence. He doesn't just totally give her a non-answer. He does take the side of the Jews. He kind of gives a two-part answer. And the first part is, if, if you want to know who's right between the Samaritans and the Jews, the answer is the Jews. The Jews are right. They worship the God that they know. You worship what you do not know. You're the ignorant ones. Jesus is merely affirming the very basic truth that God chose Israel as his covenant people in the Old Testament. They were the ones God gave the oracles of salvation to. They were the ones God gave the gospel to. They were the one God gave the law to. They were the sole possessors of all of God's oracles in Revelation. And so what does that mean? That means the only way for earthly people to get it is to go to them. Salvation is from the Jews, meaning they have the gospel, they have salvation, they have the Bible. So if you want to know God and be saved, you need to go to the Jews. It's, salvation is from them. And so since the Samaritans refused to go to the Jews for salvation, since they refused to go find the oracles of God from the Jews, they were left in ignorance. And their ignorance led them to false theology and false practices of worship. And so Jesus is very, he's taking the side of the Jews. They're right. Their Bible's the right Bible. You're supposed to be worshiping God in Israel, not Mount Gerizim. So he does give them an answer. But in a very real sense, though, he basically summarizes his answer by saying, listen, the Jews are right, but it's kind of a moot point at at this time. In other words, he's telling her this big hot button issue you guys are so concerned with, Now that I'm here, guess what? It's irrelevant. The answer to your question is irrelevant. Why? Because I have come to bring a whole new form of worship, something both Jew and Gentile need to submit under. I have come to transform worship for everybody. Your question is meaningless now. It doesn't matter anymore because I've brought something new. And he describes this new form of worship in the terms of spirit and truth. New covenant worship institutes worship that is done in spirit and in truth. And I'm just most likely for time's sake, I'll just refer to this as spiritual worship. Christ came to bring to the world spiritual worship. And so this obviously raises the question, what does it mean? To worship in spirit and truth. What is spiritual worship? How does it differ from what the Israelites were already doing? Well, I think buried in this text are three of the most important ways that new covenant worship is transformed from old. 
How did we go from Old Covenant worship to spiritual worship? Well, Jesus changed three very important things. And I gave some alliteration to help you remember them. He changed the place of worship, the people of worship, and the practices of worship. He changed the place, the people, and the practices. So let's look at the place. Jesus changed the place. And that's the most relevant answer to this particular dispute, right? That's literally what she's asking about. Where are we supposed to worship? Israel, Mount Gerizim, where? What part, in other words, has God, what part of the world has God sanctified, has God set apart as the right place to worship him? And Jesus tells her the answer in the new covenant, what part of the world? The whole thing. The whole thing. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, Jesus is not telling her that worship will not take place in these places. He's not telling her they're going to be empty or filled with pagans or you're not allowed to worship there. So don't interpret him as saying that. He's not saying literally worship won't happen here. He's saying worship will not be designated to only take place in one of these two locations. The hour is coming and is already here when God will not set apart Israel, nor will he set apart Sakar. He's set apart at all. Jesus' point is that in spiritual worship, we get to worship God from wherever we are. In other words, I've got some exciting news for you. The whole world is now the Holy Land. People talk about, I, I want to take a trip to, to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. Say, come visit Roswell. In the New Testament, there is nothing, hear me on this, nothing more spiritually enlightening or powerful or sanctified or important about Israel than Roswell. Nothing. Obviously, Israel has historical significance that Roswell doesn't. So I'm not saying it's bad and you shouldn't go there and you shouldn't visit. I'm not saying anything like that. There's glorious history to be found there. But in terms of spiritual worship and how God views these places, Israel is not superior to Roswell. It used to be, but it's not anymore. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Jesus has sanctified everywhere to worship. And, and, and this is consistent with who God is because Jesus tells us spiritual worship is fitting to a spiritual God. So let me ask you this question. You could think about it this way. Where should you worship God? Wherever He is. Go to wherever God is. And where is our spiritual God? Is he in Roswell? Is he in Israel? Is he in Russia? Is he in China? Is he in South Korea? Is he in North Korea? Go to wherever God is, and he's a spirit. He's everywhere. You worship God from wherever you are. That's spiritual worship. There's no place designated to worship now. And by the way, I don't want you to think of Jesus as like coming in and being like, listen, God tried this and it didn't work out. That was a bad idea. Now that I think about it, it doesn't even really make sense because God's a spirit and Israel is a physical place. So just worship him. From No, this was always the game plan. This was always the plan. The Old Testament itself, after it's established Israel as the holy city, the Old Testament itself promised, by the way, this is temporary. Right, let me just show you a couple of those prophecies. Malachi 1.11 For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Pure worship is going to one day take place everywhere. 
in every nation. We see this in Isaiah 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. People are going to be worshiping God in pagan nations one day. We're going to set up a temple in Egypt one day, but not a literal one. We're going to burn incense in every nation one day, not literal incense. But spiritual worship was always prophesied to be the ultimate outcome of God's reign. And this is why we no longer need a temple. Because part and parcel of why you should worship in Israel is because that's where the temple is set up. The temple was the place where God dwelled. The temple was where you needed to go and worship. But what we know now in the New Testament is we have a spiritual temple. We no longer have any need whatsoever of a brick and mortar temple. Because in the New Covenant, our worship is spiritual. We are already, get, hear me on this, you're already in it. You're worshiping in the temple right now. You want to see that? Keep your marker here. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We just preached through Ephesians, so hopefully this is still fresh on your mind somewhat. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. If you want to worship in the temple, Paul's going to teach you how. Or forgive me, verses 19 through 22. Speaking to Ephesian Gentiles, keep in mind, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I need to correct myself. I said that you're already worshiping in the temple. That's not true. You're worshiping as the temple. You are the temple. Because in the New Covenant, we have a spiritual temple. The church, the bride of Christ. We no longer have a physical carnal temple because that belonged to the carnal covenant. But we're now in the spiritual covenant. God changed, Jesus, forgive me, changed the place of our worship. But part and parcel of place, when we're talking about where we worship, that, that is part and parcel of nations. And so if Jesus is going to change the place of worship... And that must by necessity mean he's also changing the people who worship. And that's actually what the first part of Ephesians 2 mentions. So just jump back up to me. So this is number two. Jesus changes the place of worship and he changes the people of worship. Look at, begin with me at verse 11. This was the first half that we just skipped over. Therefore remembers that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So do you hear the carnal the language of this? In the flesh, uncircumcised, fleshly, body, separated from the commonwealth, the city of Israel. 
But here comes the spiritual covenant, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What a glorious truth. You see, the old covenant was centered on Israel, a national political body. They were the people of God. Christ affirmed this in our very text. From them comes salvation. God gave them the gospel alone. But now, under spiritual worship, the people of God are a spiritual people, not an ethnic people, not a national people. And this is why the gospel now goes out where? To Israel? To those who are near? No. To those who are far off. Jesus didn't just preach to the Jews, to those who were near. He preached to those who were far off. The gospel is now for the nations, not just for Israel. As Peter, after his great sermon at Pentecost, tells them that the promise is for you and your children and all those who are far off. The gospel is for the Gentiles. It's for the whole world because Christ has brought in not a national people, not an ethnic people, but a spiritual people. And a spiritual church is men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And by the way, I'm not just getting this from Ephesians 2. It's implicit in multiple ways in John's gospel in 4. I already talked about the change of place is going to change the people. But more implicitly, Jesus further models this practice in John 4 by virtue of the fact that who is he evangelizing right now? A Samaritan. Ephesians says he preached peace to those who were near and those who were far off. Here's an example of that. And it says because both of those groups are brought to God through one spirit. That's the water he offered her. Jesus' message to the Samaritan is the same message to the Jew. He preached the same message to a male, Jewish, rich academic that he preached to a poor, commonly female Gentile. His gospel is the same for everyone because his people includes everyone. The new covenant brings the gospel to the nations and equalizes everyone in Christ. This is exactly what Paul says elsewhere in many of his epistles. One of the more famous examples, Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. This is what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. Listen, I get your question. And yeah, technically the Jews are right, but it's irrelevant. Why? Because now that I'm here, there's no such thing as Jews. There's no such thing as Gentiles. There are Christians. We are all one in Christ. You want to be Abraham's offspring? You don't need to worship at some well. You don't need to have some bloodline. You want to be part of the patriarchs? Come to Christ. 
Believers are the children of Abraham. Believers are the sons of God. It doesn't matter what your skin color is or who your grandparents are. That's the glory of spiritual worship. It's a spiritual people. We see this also in John's vision in Revelation. His vision of heaven. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from Israel. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A spiritual worship is not an ethnic people. It's a spiritual people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Jesus changed not just the place of our worship. He literally changed the people of worship. That's spiritual worship. But lastly, Jesus also changes the very practices of our worship. He changes the, literally the motions we go through. The Jews were encumbered with a very large number of ceremonies and symbols and all of these external actions and external rites that they had to go through. Christ has changed that. Spirit and truth, in other words, are the antithesis to what the book of Hebrews calls types and shadows. Old covenant worship was worship in types and shadows. New covenant worship is spirit and truth. We worship now in spirit, not in type. You see, type were the external religious rites, which only gave a, a very vague explanation of Christ and his gospel. We no longer worship with those types. Sacrificing animals and bringing wine to be burned and food to be burned. Because these types have now been fulfilled and we now practice them not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. So we still bring sacrifices to an altar, but our sacrifices are spiritual and our altar is spiritual. You want to know what that looks like? Well, the author of Hebrews can help you. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of animals. Praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Your first fruit offering is now your praise. <laughs> your sacrificial sacrifices, your animal sacrifices, those offerings, you want to bring them to church every Sunday? Please do. Bring your sacrifices every Sunday, but what are they? Praise. <laughs> spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual offerings. The types have been replaced by the Spirit. We don't need the types anymore. We also don't need the shadows. Because we now have the truth. We never have some vague conception of a coming Messiah, but Christ came and revealed the truth, and He revealed it fully. We worship now in spirit and truth, not in types and shadows. And that's why we don't go through all of the ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament. Christ fulfilled them and instituted a new form of worship. I don't technically have time for this, but I just want to briefly mention, this is part of the reason why in our church we worship with, with very little imagery. Right, let me say that again, with no imagery. We don't worship through statues and pictures and icons. Look at verse 24. Go back to John and look at verse 24 with me. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spiritual worship is supposed to reflect, its stems and ground is grounded in the fact that our God is a spiritual being. He's not a corporeal being. He's not a physical being. And so this is why we don't try to turn God into a physical object. 
This is why we don't think we need all of these physical images in order to rightly worship him. Because a physical image cannot accurately comprehend the unphysical God. A temporal image, which has to be created by us and taken care of by us and moved by us, does not accurately reflect the God who created us, who takes care of us, who we are moved by Him. An image, an idol, is the exact opposite of who God is. But, but I don't even have to just bash on, on worshiping through statues and pictures. Just generally speaking, my hope is that you will walk away from this sermon today and you maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with the simplicity of our worship here at Redeemer. There are churches that are far superior to us aesthetically. There are churches where their pastors wear elegant robes with colorful sashes. Their walls are gold. And they're covered with beautiful, top-of-the-line artistic craftsmanship and beautiful paintings and beautiful images. They've got marble floors and handcrafted pews. And they, they, they light a delicious incense which is constantly rising. And you can see it, the light beams of the beautiful stained glass windows ver- reverberating through the incense. And then you come to Redeemer and we've got white walls. And fluorescent lights. And some guy in a tie. Our worship is very plain and simple here. We, go, we do the same things every week. We sing. We give our tithes and offerings. We preach. And we do the Lord's Supper. Very simple. Very basic. Very boring. I say this is to our praise. The time for the beautiful external temple is gone. The time for pure worship in the Spirit has come. God is not impressed with our pomp and our splendor. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your sincerity. He wants you to know Christ and to cherish Him with your entire being. He wants your songs. He wants your praises. He wants your faith. He wants your trust. Yes, what I'm saying is that in the New Covenant, worship really is pretty simple. And it's pure. And and might I add, because I understand a person might respond and say, well, I can do all those things and have the beauty. And I grant that. But let me just remind us that if, if the nation of Israel is any example to us, it shows us how often ceremonies and smells and bells actually become hindrances to pure worship and not aids. How often do these encumbrances of external rites and traditions turn people into robots who merely go through the motions and they think they're religious because I did my 25 sacraments and I'm wearing the right necklace and I'm wearing the right cross and I did the daily thing and I lit the incense. They go through the motions and think they're religious and they've not once ever examined their heart. They can distract you. They can convince you that you are a religious person when you're not. The, the woman at Samaria thought she was good. I'm a Samaritan. I worship where Abraham does. I've got the well of Jacob. And Jesus tried to show her, you're not good. Being a Samaritan is not helping your sexual sin. Being near Jacob's well is not helping your sexual sin. And so I'm asking you, please, don't be discouraged by the simplicity of our worship here at Redeemer. As long as our worship meets the standards of spirit and truth, then we have much to be glad about. Because that's what the new covenant demands of us. It doesn't demand riches and gold. It demands pure 
spiritual worship. And it is demanded not just of us, but it is demanded of all everywhere. A glorious global worship of God.